This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Expangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe and practicing social distancing during this uncertain time of the coronavirus pandemic here in the United States and elsewhere. My guest this week is Nate Postlewaite, who runs the popular Instagram page and blog, The Other Side of Saved. He talks about his journey of healing from a lot of religious trauma and other types of trauma, so please be advised that this conversation does include frank discussions of both trauma and abuse, childhood abuse, sexual abuse, lots of different types of things that uh, he has addressed through therapy throughout his life. So please be aware of that while listening to this episode. It's a great conversation and I'm excited to share it with you. As always, you can support the show by rating it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, sharing it with your friends, or supporting it via Patreon at patreon.com slash pod. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. Finally, if you enjoyed this show, you may want to check out No Place Like Home. It's a podcast that gets to the heart of climate change through personal stories. Hosts Marianne Hitt and Anna Jane Joyner explore the biggest story of our time from inviting intimate, creative, and surprising angles. From staying sane in the age of climate change to real talk about whether or not our personal choices really matter to saving the planet, No Place Like Home dives into the spiritual, personal, cultural, and emotional dimensions of climate change. They don't shy away from science and politics, but we always bring along our sense of humor, or their sense of humor, and a feisty sense of hope. Their new season is called Bring the Light, which is something that we really need right now. So please check that podcast out wherever you listen to podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or elsewhere. If you are interested in advertising on Exvangelical, please reach out at contact at exvangelicalpodcast.com. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Nate Postlewaite, creator of the blog, podcast, and Instagram account, The Other Side of Saved. Welcome to the show, Nate. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming on. I'm glad you reached out, and I'm glad we uh, have a chance to talk a bit about your journey. Where I like to start on the show is really from the beginning and get a good sense of where you grew up and what your initial sort of experience with religion was and what your faith of origin was like. So let's start there. Well, I was born in a manger. (laughs) In the deep, deep South Georgia, uh, grew up the youngest of seven kids in a very diehard mission, faith-based Southern Baptist environment. And um, we, you know, my mother grew up in a really religious environment. My dad didn't know anything about religion. And so their coming together was kind of a, a new offspring of his family line of him marrying into this new dynamic where they're creating this very righteous life where they have a lot of kids and my mom makes her daughter's dresses and everything is centered around our church life. We were Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Um, we were all in as long as yeah. I could remember. <laughs> so you were always at the, at the church doing something. Always at the church. 
And so were both of your parents involved in that church life or was it primarily an interest of your, of your mother's and then, or did you, was your father sort of brought along and learned that, that part of life? I think on an emotional level, he was kind of brought along, but as far as discipline and commitment, he was there. I think that she just had a different level of maturity and hunger than he had. Mm-hmm. But they really, as a team, centered their entire life around what it meant to be righteous and honoring God and um, the rules. And it, it's it's what you think of, of a Southern Baptist church in the late 70s, early to mid 80s. It's mm-hmm. just strict. It's We're talking about South Georgia, a town of 5,000 people. I eventually moved to uh, central Alabama when I was 10, but both environments were so similar where everything around religion um, is about kind of bleeding out, like making sure that you are completely sold out to Christ and mm-hmm. you're in his name. And but everything was somehow tied into God. There was never anything that was just a normal conversation about life everything was centered around religion did you have like religious education or was religion present even if you went to a public school so i went to a public school and religion was not present there but i think that because we were so um insulated in our religion and having bible study multiple times a week in our home that we taught very early on that anyone who did not believe like we believed they were a threat. They were, um, disobeying. They were to be dismissed. They were to be held in your peripheral with a lot of caution because Mm -hmm. they believe the same way. And, you know, when you're a kid, you believe that and you understand that, um, the best way that a kid can, but it's, it's really difficult to make actual connection. And the bizarre part was as a child, I remember looking at other people who, like, I remember when MTV came out, and people had cable television and watched MTV. And I was like, oh, my God, they are so rich. <laughs> like, I equated to be we – were, we were very poor. We were a very large family. And um, my mom did not work. She worked part-time jobs at different – like during holidays and stuff like that. But for the most part, it was just my dad's income supporting a lot of kids. Right. You know, as a kid – when you continually have religion to be your all encompassing identity, you're still surrounded by other people who have a lot more quality self-esteem and assurance that you don't have and -hmm. they don't have religion. And I I picked up on that to a certain degree very early on, but I still had that bend in my mind of thinking they're lost and I'm found I'm saved. I'm secure. So do you think that your, in retrospect, was your sort of social circle limited to those people that were not lost, uh, like as far as who your family associated with or who you became friends with, or did you have exposure to people sort of outside of that sphere of life? It, it would, I would definitely say that it was limited, but even the exposure that we did have would always be um, extreme circumstances, a lot of poverty, a lot of, lot of trauma. Um, I, when I think back and I've talked about this a lot in therapy to the stuff that I saw as a kid while being in church three times a week, 
it's just amazing that that collision can be in the same group of, holy shit, we were super religious, super devout, yet there was so much trauma mm-hmm. when I was still exposed to so much other things that you just, you, you think in your head, how did those two go hand in hand? And that's what took me a long time to, to figure out, but I, I finally got a grasp on it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely a big part of your story. Right. And that's uh, as far as recognizing what you went through was traumatic in some aspects. And this is something you talk about on your podcast and other places. You started to experience those things early on. Yeah. Yeah. The, I think one of the most, I'm 42 years old now and I started going to therapy when I was 18 And I went to therapy because I felt like I was such a deficit as a human because I'd grown up hearing about this God that was a savior for so long. And at that point, I had tried everything that I knew to do to rid myself of shame and be righteous or feel on the inside. I wanted wanted my soul. I wanted what existed inside of me to match doctrine. Mm Mm-hmm. And I could not get there. And I blamed myself for that. I blamed myself for always feeling like I can't present to the gospel, to Christianity, what what they're asking of me. There's not enough in me. There's too much shame. But um, yeah, the the very first time I really ever shared with a therapist, I didn't I didn't know to call it you know, sexual abuse, but there was uh, sexual abuse that started as early as six years old from from a neighbor that went on for a couple of years. And um, they're probably the the most traumatic. I was 12 years old and there was just a um, very unfortunate timing where I was introduced to this 36-year-old pedophile who went through the full grooming process and really um, I think could sense quite a ways away. This is a very vulnerable child. This is a child that feels very out of place. And, um, and I was an easy target. And, and, you know, in addition to that, there was a lot of abuse that went on in our home. Um, at one point I was removed from my parents' home while they were super active in their church. But um, there was an investigation over a lot of the abuse that went on with me and and my father. So you've you've got this kid who everything in my world that was good was about God. Mm. Everything that had to do with being a Christian or finding peace had to do with being gutted from the core. Right. To become something that matches scripture or matches doctrine. Right. That whole, he must increase and I must decrease sort of yeah. thinking. Yeah. Or, you know, what a privilege to suffer and his, to, to share the, the fellowship of his sufferings. And, um, you think about a young six-year-old who's hearing those messages and how complicated that is where his nervous system has been hijacked from sexual abuse. He has all of this trauma living inside of his body he is doing everything that he can to pull everything together on a daily basis to make sure that he is presentable and feels loved while on the inside he is falling apart because mm-hmm. 
all of the security that a kid's supposed to have has been systematically, strategically removed. And he's this kind of walking hollow shell looking for anything to lead him to the next path. Hmm. I'm sorry that all happened to you. Uh, it's terrible. And as an interviewer, I, I feel like that <laughs> I feel terrible just having to ask you another question. <laughs> you know? <laughs> know this. And I always, I always say this in these interviews. I, if anything, I'm extremely comfortable talking about these things. I started working on this 24 years ago mm -hmm. and, um, haven't talked about it enough. And my intent, I, I need zero validation about my story. I need the people who are hurting the most, who are quiet, alone, believing that they somehow created the shame that they've experienced or created the traumatic experience. I need them to hear the story right. so that they can start a process to recognize yeah. this has nothing to do with me. So right. I'm open game and very comfortable in being able to talk about these things. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that um, because I do have more questions. And uh, so I want to return to how you brought up shame um, and hear from you a little bit about how that shame was reinforced by the sort of religious experiences that you had and the, the religious teachings and communities that you were a part of. Because um, I think that is something that's really resonant with a lot of listeners, a lot of people that come from fundamentalist or even more general, uh, less hardline types of evangelicalism. This sense that, as you said, that everything that uh, what really stood out was you said everything that was good had to, was ascribed to God and everything that's bad is ascribed to you. Being in a place where you're experiencing, in a home where you're experiencing this, these traumas and have been subject to these, uh, been abused, how did that interact with, with all of these things that, as you said, your body is just, your body and your mind are processing. Um, and then you're told that the only good thing in the universe is, is what God does or who God is. Sure. So think about, you know, we know the message that we all got as kids that grew up in the evangelical church. And I would say if you start with masculinity, to be a boy or a man, a Christian man, it's very specific that that means that you are um, in love with a woman and you're her spiritual leader and you're stronger than her and you work and she doesn't, she stays home with your kids. Um, it means that you are, um, you have a deeper insight and understanding. Um, you are following Christ and being godly. Um, when you think about all of those things, they are, it's not just like, hey, if you're able to do these things, then you can check the box and be satisfied in the sight of God. It's also However, if you are not these things, mm -hmm. you go to hell. You are basically dismissed. And so as a very young child, I remember the first time I heard the word gay and the way that it was described was pretty horrific. And um, I, I remember thinking to myself, that relates to me somehow. Not what they're explaining, but the gay thing. Like I know that that somehow 
relates to me. And based on what they're saying, their, their reaction is so visceral that I have to rearrange that somehow. And that process started when I was six years old. Wow. So again, yeah, again, you think about, you don't realize at six or eight or 10 that you're, what you're actually trying to do is run from trauma that's living inside your body. You're trying so hard to be found, but I can safely say that with, in the context of evangelical Christianity, I was never seen. There was nothing about me that was validated or seen. I was a very tender-hearted kid who um, very compassionate towards the underdog. And um, that's just not what I was taught being a man of God is. So yeah, and gotta gotta toughen up. Don't be so sensitive. <laughs> toughen up. And again, if you cannot reach those levels, that's volumes about your worth. Yeah. Let's talk about that that sense of like evangelical masculinity and trying to fit in with other guys in that space. Cause yeah, I was a sensitive kid too. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> 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 and uh that was something that I I felt sort of I sort of bristled against. And I think that Midwestern men of you know, they they're supposed to be at least what was modeled or what I saw in my churches and things like that. They were supposed to be stoic and um reserved and uh, you know, just all these different markers that I didn't necessarily I I wasn't against them, but it was just more like I wasn't interested. <laughs> so like what was that? I mean, you you had this aspect of also wrestling with your sexuality and relating to that in a, in a negative way at that point in your life. But even just amongst other men, what what was that like for you? Um, well, first, I want to ask you, when you're talking about your experience and you had no interest, were you intimidated by what it meant or did you were you able to put it in a category and just say, yeah, that's just not for me and I'm OK being. Uh, you know, that's a good question. Uh, there were certain things that I, certain things that I wasn't able to do because I, so the main one is that once I got to sixth grade, I couldn't play football, um, because I have epilepsy and my, my doctors just said, no way. Uh, like you, you cannot play a contact sport. Basically that sort of shut off that part of, uh, like a formative part of middle school and high school for me. And then actually that was when I got, became really nerdy and, um, got into like youth group shit and, and star Wars, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. so for me it was like, I wasn't necessarily, uh, drawn to those things. And I, I felt a little bit lacking for that. That would nag at me, but it took a while until I could find people that I felt, you know, were interested in the same things. Cause you know, and all that finding your, your in group or whatever, it's, it's crucial during those periods, just like it's important later on in life. So, yeah. So, but you were me, secure within who you were and did well. self-esteem is a lifelong problem for me. So it wasn't, I didn't necessarily think I was secure. I was just very in my head, you know, I, my, my self-worth, I still felt a little, you know, lacking cause I was like, you know, pudgy and uh, not athletic. And I, uh, I felt like 
that was a big problem that I wasn't those things. So for me, that was a huge insecurity. Who, who was, and I promise I'm going to answer your question. Who was, who was <laughs> the key guy that represented all of it of just like that guy, he's got the God thing down. He's got the looks, he's got the athletic ability. He's, Oh, you mean like a peer? Yeah. It's like um, the person that, that the whole, the church doted on and was like, this, this is the one. Jesus <laughs> there was, I, yeah, I've got a, a kid in mind is his first name was Jeff and he, he was the shit for sure. And on top of that was like also artistic and like, he just had all the, every, every box was checked <laughs> at least at that, at that point in life for sure. So there was a, a guy and he went to the same church as me and, and all those sorts of things. <laughs> I just think that we all have some of those people and those people are celebrated based on their performance quite a bit and mm -hmm. leaves the rest of us kind of clamoring at being able to perform like that person and betray ourselves in order to get the affirmation that we so desperately want that says we are okay and we are worth celebrating too. Right. Yeah. My, my interaction, I will say that I was so, um, stifled, stunted by knowing that there was this thing inside of me. And, and I say knowing I was so deep in denial to ever say this means that I'm gay, there wasn't enough oxygen in my world to come to that conclusion. And so I observed and I desperately wanted to be seen in that light of this is the epitome of masculinity. And I went down that route with mm -hmm. work, humor, success, but really like the epitome of evangelical. I mean, like the epitome of YWAM at 18, like just the true evangelical. And that was a way to kind of inch my way and overcompensate for this internal dialogue that's going on that's scaring me to no end. And I don't have resources to know how to process or appreciate or affirm. And so I overcompensate by being like the true evangelical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As is true evangelical, why wham right at 18? You said that's also right around the time you started therapy. Is this what sort of begins that sort of process of starting to reckon with this very intense childhood and adolescence is just going by the, the timeline you, you have of why wham at 18. Did you start therapy around the same time as well? Right, right when I got done, there was an incident on the mission field where uh, one of the spiritual leaders, one of the, the group leaders at YWAM, gave me some very unfortunate advice. I had never lived in a kind of a safe, structured environment before. So for the first time in my life at 18, I'm going to bed at the same time every night. I'm waking up at the same time every morning. And um, I took that time to settle for the first time in two months in, I heard I had what I call my first breakdown. And it was because that stability and that structure gave me room to let stuff come to the surface. And um, my roommate in the middle of the night went and got our dorm dad and said, this guy is really upset. You need to come get him. And so 
he took me down to where we do our classes. And that was the first time I shared what happened to me at 12 and 13 by this, this pedophile. And before I say this, let me preface the guy that gave me the advice that he did was so uneducated. I just have never had like harmful feelings towards him. What he said was so ignorant and did so much damage but he believed that he was not trying to harm. He was that uneducated. But I tell him this story is the first time I'd ever shared someone about being abused. And I tell him the story and his response was that I needed to repent for being involved in homosexuality. Yeah. If you think about this timeline of this little boy who doesn't have security in anything other than performance, Mm-hmm. I believed him wholeheartedly with every fiber of my being. His message matched the shame that I felt. And so I bought it. There was nothing in me that um, had a reflex and thought, what the hell is this guy saying? I, I, I full throttle thought he's absolutely right. And what's so disgusting about that is anyone who has ever had any type of sexual assault or sexual harm done to them, the shame is instant. Our bodies are not meant to know how to process sexual assault. And because it's intimate and because it's such a sacred thing to ever experience an encounter of any type with another human, because we either respond to it or or it happens and it's now registered in our body, because we don't know what to do with it, the most common thing is to turn that into shame and say, Hmm. clearly I did this. We know how to work with shame. We don't know how to work with trauma. So 18 years old, what led me to therapy was thinking, oh my God, I'm so sorry, God. And then, you know, the other thing that's so infuriating is what happened to me at 12 and 13 has nothing to do with sexuality. So when people make comments and say things like, do you think that that is why you struggle with my sexual, your sexuality? And I'm like, well, no, I struggled with my sexuality because of what I was taught by the evangelical church. What he did to me, that wasn't sex and that's not sexuality. Right. That's a, you're right. That's a very dangerous lie that evangelical spaces tell is that abuse leads to some change in sexual identity or orientation. I've, I've spoken up quite a bit about that because number one, so many other people reach out to me and say, no one has ever said this before. And I'm like, isn't that tragic that no one ever said to you that is absurd. Being sexually abused doesn't have anything to do with sexual orientation. And what him, that man being homosexual has nothing to do with sexuality. Him being a pedophile is about control. That has nothing to do with sexual orientation. So a lot of those things are very blurred. The, the lack of education is, is tragic. Um, that conversation with him led me to Christian counseling. My parents put me in uh, conversion therapy right away. I had my whole experience at Love and Action that caused an unbelievable amount of trauma that I feel like I've healed from the best way that I know how, but conversion therapy, my God, it just, it does something to you that is is so confusing to know what reality is and to know what, what God is and, and what that means. And 
it's, um, it's a pain and it is a darkness that for me has equaled sexual abuse for sure. They're in the same category together because the assault is against something so vulnerable and so sacred. I do these interviews all the time. And when they, when, when I talk about complex trauma, it's when you have a traumatic experience on top of a traumatic experience on top of a traumatic experience, I was in survival mode all of those years. So there wasn't even room to be saved or have someone come alongside me and say, you know, holy shit, dude, we've got to get your nervous system to start rattling, stop rattling so you can have a normal life. There wasn't, there wasn't room for any of that. And Mm -hmm. when I look at all of that, the one thing in my way was Christianity. Like it literally walled me in to have no access to medicine, a professional therapist with credentials and licenses, books that had to do with trauma. I mean, like there were so many resources that could have been beneficial, but because I went the the Christian route, um, I lost so, so many years. And that's why I want other people to know, please trust your instinct. Please trust your instinct and know that none of us are meant to suffer the way that we've suffered under the hands of uneducated evangelicalism. That's just, that's just not what we're here for. Right. Yeah. And that's such a good point that so often like people have these, these nagging doubts and you're taught to not listen to your doubts, but you know, you, you feel this sense of pain or you feel this sense of, or anger or whatever, whatever signal you're sending to yourself. You're right. And like, those are good signals to listen to and to follow through on. So what was the crack in that wall that Christianity and evangelical Christianity had put up around your recovery? What got you on a, a path that let you break through that wall and, and start to really work on addressing the, the trauma that you had undergone? Yeah, that's a great question. So <clears throat> I spent 18 to 31 in some form of... Christian therapy, conversion therapy. Um, the therapist that I saw while I lived in in Nashville was kind of the, I guess, kind of known as the liberal Christian. He had, I mean, he he was he was in demand, and several of my friends had gone to him, and um, I went to him when I was 23 or 24 years old, and just kind of laid my story on the line in our very first session. And just said, this is what I've experienced. This is where I'm at now. Can you help me? And I was just desperate. And um, he said, yeah. And I believe that in his mind, he was doing me a favor by inviting me to his home for dinner and inviting me to like a men's group that he was in and just a lot of really inappropriate things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was $200 an hour, which to this day, I'm really <laughs> stupid. 
<laughs> but I, I look back at that, and, and he certainly did a lot of damage around my view of sexuality. But when I was uh, 31 years old, I had my first encounter with full-on reality where I had flashbacks of additional abuse that had that happened when I was a kid and there were all of these details and, and stories that came back to me and um, I'd always through all of those years I had this thing that I would often say to close friends and to my therapist there's a piece of my story that I'm missing and I don't know what it is and my therapist would say your brain and your heart will work together and reveal it at the right time when they know that it's safe. <clears throat> and that time was December of 2009. And um, I had all of these memories come back and I had a lot of anxiety because for the first time, all of these blanks were filled in where I thought, hmm. no wonder I've wrestled with sex addiction. Like, oh my God. There was this and there was this and there was this and there were all of these, all of these dynamics and all these different things that I'd encountered. It was the first time in my life I considered maybe this wasn't my fault. Maybe the way that you feel is because of stuff that was done to you and not because you're just a human trash can. And <clears throat> I was waiting, it was right after Christmas, I was waiting for a friend to come back in town from his family trip and I went to his house that night and I just shared a lot of the details with him of a lot of the memories and just putting all of these pieces of different stories together, a lot that I've already told you about tonight. And he asked me for specifics, which I thought was really interesting. And I think that he wanted to understand the gravity of when I say that there was this and this and this, he wanted to understand. And so I told him several of the stories that I remembered and um, the look on his face was horror. And I kept saying to him, but I'm not mad. I'm just glad I understand my story. I'm not mad. I'm just glad I understand my story. And Blake, my, my heart rate was so high and my face was flushed and I kept saying that over and over and um, I left that night. When I got home that night, my body unraveled and I stopped sleeping. Um, I had just built this beautiful home in downtown Franklin. I went to my partners at a firm that I was part owner of. I was the vice president there and I resigned. I closed the blinds to my home. I stopped responding to phone calls and emails. I gained 50 pounds and just, I disappeared from life because I did not have the tools to process the amount of trauma that had happened. And I was obsessed with time. I wanted time to sit still so that I could catch my breath because all of a sudden there's all of this new information that is basically saying, you know, hey, Nate, heads up, none of this was your fault. And when you just, when you recognize the extent that other people went to, parents included, to cause harm, 
to maintain control. It was, it was too much. It was just too much. It was so dark to recognize their involvement in so much of my abuse. Um, <clears throat> I have this saying, I hate cliches so much. I hate them so much. And when people say everything happens for a reason, you know, my response is everything does not happen for a reason. Everything happens because people make decisions every day. And some of those decisions include causing a shitload of harm to other people. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason behind it. It is what it is. And the other one is God will never give you more than you can handle. Well, what does that say about me? Because I had a nervous breakdown. So clearly I couldn't handle it, you know, and it's just so ignorant that people continue to, to say these things that are so dismissive beyond all of the, the conversion therapy bullshit and all of the like inappropriate therapy. The thing that makes me the most angry about this therapist was from December of 2009 until October of the next year. He let me stay in that condition while encouraging more prayer, more Bible verses, more books. Not once did he say, okay, you're sleeping two hours a night. You wake up screaming. You're afraid to sleep in your own bed because that that bedroom feels too large. So you sleep in your guest room because you feel safer in there. Um, you have gained 50 pounds. You've stopped working. I, I mean, anybody with half an ounce of awareness would say, holy shit, this guy is unraveling. I've got to get him help. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing for 10 months, nothing. Everything, every tool, every Wednesday at one o'clock, all was related to being a stronger Christian. So in October of that year, I found an uh, outpatient treatment center for, I didn't even know what PTSD was. In my head, PTSD was someone who's gone to the war and they fought. And now if they hear loud noises, they react like that. That was the extent of what I understood. And I got to this um, treatment center and the lady, my therapist gave me her card and I've never seen so many credentials and licenses in my life. Like it was her name, comma, LMFT, comma, LCSW, comma, EMDR. I mean, on and on and on. And I was like, this Mm -hmm. is great. My time there gave me my life back. It was my introduction to reality for the first time. It was so powerful to work through so much of the trauma that was on the surface at the time that I was really wrestling with. But Mm -hmm. when I left, they were very clear and said, you need to come back for this. You need to come back for this. You need to come back for this. And honestly, Blake, I got back to my home and I looked around and I just thought, I hate this life that I've built. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get as far away from here as I can. And that's when I moved to San Diego and then started um, in 2010, I started EMDR therapy. And explain what that is uh, for the listeners, because I've I've also heard mention of it and I I do know that it is very helpful for people, but I don't have a great uh, frame of reference for it and, and what that therapy entails. I love explaining this to people because I'm a layman and I get to explain it from uh, experience, not the technical 
I, I mean, it's part technical, but I love being able to explain to people like what it actually does to your brain. So mm-hmm. when something traumatic happens, you think about a seven-year-old. No seven-year-old on the planet is born with functioning skills to know how to um, respond to a situation. And listen, trauma is anything that happens to a person that they experience as traumatic. That is what trauma mm-hmm. is. Um, so you imagine this seven-year-old who has an experience, no tools. And so what you do, what we all do is we take that experience and we push it on one side of our brain so that it doesn't have movement because our movement goes left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain. So we stick it on one side of our brain and we push it away. And what we think we've done is we've eliminated that memory and we were building a life and saying, I never, ever want to experience that again. What we don't realize is that we are living with it, recreating it day in and day out through our relationships, through our eating habits, through our addictions. Like it is rooted in our brain and it's helping us make all of the the bad decisions. EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. There are several different um, forms that they use. Mine has always been the dual fingers where they hold uh, two fingers up in front of your eyes and move them back and forth. You, you talk quite a bit before doing MDR and lay the foundation of, you know, say that we're saying, what was it like for eight-year-old Nate to hear the yelling before someone came into his room to abuse him? Like, and we're, we're talking about that, we're laying the foundation and then when you do the EMDR and you've got the, the fingers moving in front of your eyes, you, you're sitting still. And what that does is it taps into that memory. So where it's been stuck all of that time, you poke a hole in it and then you pull a little bit of it and then a little bit more and a little bit more. And all of a sudden it's got left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain. And so say I'm doing that at 34 years old, at 34 I'm able to provide perspective, understanding, healing to that young boy that he wasn't able to get himself because it just wasn't available. Um, I've done over 300 hours of EMDR. It saved my life. I'm a huge advocate. It is not for everyone. There are sir, I, I, I know people who have said when I tried it, it was so triggering. I also think it's really important that if you're doing EMDR, you have got to have a strong, strong, safe security with your therapist. That's imperative because that person's leading you back to the trauma. I don't want to scare people away. I just want to put that disclaimer out there that if you don't have a strong connection with your therapist and feel incredibly safe, Please don't try EMDR. Please don't. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a very, very interesting process and, and way in which to, you know, use those psychosomatic and bodily things in order to address memories. Um, that's, that's fascinating, and I'm glad it's worked well for you. I want to talk a little bit about how you decided to take all these different experiences you had in, in healing um, and pursuing all these elements of therapy after you you broke through this wall of evangelical Christianity and a shitty Christian counselor and found good treatment 
and started to make progress. What eventually led you to want to start sharing these stories and developing this public aspect of your recovery and, and sharing that recovery? Tell me what led you to that point and why, why you are passionate about talking about your recovery from trauma. Sure. So I've always been a hard worker. Um, because we grew up poor, we, I mean, we had to fend for ourselves in a lot of ways and I enjoy work, but I've always used success as a buffer and an excuse, kind of a shield. So that when people said, why aren't you married? You know, I'm, I'm too busy. Uh, the thought of someone believing that I was gay or wrestling with my sexuality terrified me. My closest friends all knew we talked very openly um, as best we could for years about that. But um, there just was still a deep longing for me. I was hardwired so early to believe that there's this thing that God's going to do where he flips a switch and all of a sudden I am heterosexual. And so even after all of the MDR therapy, I still didn't come out. And in 2016, I had my moment that was so powerful and so sacred by myself on a Friday night. And um, I was hurting and I just felt like, okay, I have done this much work on myself. I don't understand how after at this point, 18 years of intensive therapy, no social life through my 20s and 30s, no amazing vacations, no, I understand my hobbies, but just like gutting myself working towards that switch being flipped. And um, I just got to a place where by myself on a Friday evening in July of 2016, I just thought, I just don't think I can do this anymore. And why haven't I explored at this point, like what would happen if you explored coming out? What would that be like? Mm -hmm. And it was such a powerful moment to sit because my coming out is so different to me. I think everybody's coming out is so unique. Mine had very little to do with me being gay. Like I was very comfortable with that part. Very comfortable, very unapologetic. It was recognizing if you do this, you're going to lose a lot of relationships and you're going to have to grieve for fighting the wrong battle for so long. Mm. Yeah. And I recognize that that's what kept me closeted. So started the coming out process in that July. Um, the, the, the negative experiences just have no impact on me. There was nothing traumatic. Sure enough, people dropped me. There were um, a lot of angry Christians of, you know, I don't agree. There were people just like, I don't feel any different people that I saw on a on a weekly basis, I don't feel any differently and I understand and I never heard from them again. But all of those relationships were, were replaced with people that are my people where the relationships just don't take the kind of work. So there was nothing really traumatic about all of that. With that, the positive part was other level positive. The amount of support mm. that I got, the very first person that I came out to was to my closest friend, who to this day is still my closest friend. And he said, I don't know another human who has worked as hard as you have to heal. 
And I am all for you exploring this and doing whatever it takes to capture life that, that you enjoy. And that meant the world to me. And so once you start coming out and all of a sudden at 36, I turned 37 the next month, all of a sudden it's like, sorry, I turned 30, I was 38, turned 39 the next month. All of a sudden you're known for the first time. You're, you're yeah. actually being honest about who you are for the first time in your life. And of course, in the beginning, in my head, I thought, oh, God is probably furious about this and I'm just misunderstanding something and had all of this other kind of psychobabble that went on in my head. But the positive, the, the experience was so powerful that a year later when I turned 40, my career was at a really unique position where um, the success was off the charts. It was just stupid success. And, you know, had I stayed for three or four more years, I could have retired. I had worked so hard to get to that point, but I was barely hanging on. And I kept thinking about this quote that one of my mentors had said is, um, you can't postpone life for life. Because if you do, once you get there, your heart can't hold that dream. And all I could think was like, if you do this, you've got to do it now. So I sold my home. I sold everything that I own. I bought a bunch of plane tickets and I left the country for a sabbatical to just go explore the world. I had not done a lot of traveling and um, started a blog and podcast while I did that. That was a year and a half ago. And um, you, you can't freely travel to countries like Morocco and meet Muslim families and have dinner with them in their homes and still be convinced that you were right about being an evangelical Christian. <laughs> and if you can, you're not seeing these people. You're not there. You're just not there. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect the, I don't know, the blog and podcast just got shared with people who I think shared it and it took off and it's been such a gift. I feel like I found my people and all I think about is what it was like those 10 months sitting inside that home that was just such a dark place in my life and thinking to myself, if I survive this, if I do get through this, I'm going to help other people get through this too. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how many of those people were. I had no idea how many wounded people are walking around with these um, deep, painful traumas from the evangelical Christian movement, the Catholic Church. I mean, just it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, that's where um, I've been really specific from day one and how I've chosen to communicate very unapologetic and I don't engage the bullshit either. Um, I just don't have any desire to explain where I'm coming from. I share my message in a way that I think is going to help the people who need to hear it and the rest who feel imposed or offended. That's not my story. And regardless of their offense, that has nothing to do with the people that have been hurt and need to hear a message that helps them heal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the places that you've, you've found a lot of community and, have a lot of exposure is over on Instagram. And this is 
sort of a just something that that I think is very interesting because I right. I am not a very good user of that platform. <laughs> like I started using it uh, primarily to share pictures of my kid, and so my profile has basically been private. But I share all sorts of random thoughts over on Twitter. But it seems like they're over on Instagram. There is a lot of very interesting accounts, uh, including yours, that really address elements in regards to trauma and counseling and, and therapy and sharing different different things within, say, a post and then sharing a bit about your story. And I'm curious just in the way that people, again, you know, you said you found your people you that and you've discovered through sharing your story that there are a lot of other people who have similar experiences. I'm just very curious personally about the way in which that sort of information gets discovered and the way it finds audiences. Um, sort of my, this show found an audience unexpectedly. Again, so, me too. I, I, was, I started the show just with the intent of talking to my friends from college that I knew all sort of became more liberal and less evangelical and understanding why the hell that happened. And then it found this, this broader interest. So within your experience over on a different platform, um, like I, I did a lot of this on, on Twitter, for example, how have you seen that community arise around a platform like Instagram, um, which, you know, a lot of people have complicated relationships with because of, you know, whether it feeds into their body image issues, things like that. And then you see this really cool stuff happening, <laughs> like people talking about how to approach trauma or doing these different kinds of posts that acknowledge the types of the parts of life that are really worth fighting for and really worth worth fighting through. Um, but aren't necessarily, you know, picture perfect. So I'd love to hear about how that part of sharing your story has developed. And yeah, no, that's a great question. So when this all started a year and a half ago, I had to hire someone to help me with social media because I it just is not my thing. I had deleted my Facebook account for years because it just felt inauthentic and a strain. I didn't enjoy it. So I hired this this gal. Um, who has become such an amazing friend and I adore her. So I hired her and we sat down and she's like, okay, what's your first question? I was like, okay, what is Instagram? <laughs> and she said, are you serious? And I was like, <laughs> I know that I have, like, I know that my assistant has an account for me for real estate. I don't know what my name is on there. I don't know like how stuff gets on there. So we had to go through this long process. And so, you know, for me it was, I've just walked away from this career and my hope is to build a platform. I know that I'm going to eventually become a life coach. I know I've led groups for years. I've done coaching for years. I've done mentoring for years. I knew that that's where I wanted to go, but I also felt like you, you really need to build a platform in order to make this whole thing work. So during my travel, when I was writing and doing the podcast and doing Instagram, I lasted about six months and I got kind of burned out. I felt really exhausted, moved to stop traveling, moved to San Diego. And through the course of the last eight, nine months, I've gone through a layer of healing 
that I didn't know was possible, where I didn't know that I could ever celebrate. I look in the mirror and I am so grateful for the man that I see and what he fought for, what he fought against. And the message that I shared in the beginning is so different from the message that I share now. Something happened a few months ago where I was just like, fuck it. I'm not tailoring this to anybody. I'm going to say the stuff that I say to myself. I'm going to say the stuff that I say to my addict. I'm going to say the stuff that I say to my inner child. I'm going to talk about trauma. I'm going to talk about sex abuse. I'm going to talk about um, being an ex-evangelical. Like all of these things, I'm going to talk about these things in an authentic way. I get bogged down like everybody with how many likes did that get and holy shit, this one didn't take off. And I've learned over time to put the information out there and just trust that there's another Nate from 2009 somewhere getting this information. That mm-hmm. um, I think that a lot of the big growth has come from, you know, just people who have larger platforms, finding my work, sharing my work. And um, that has meant the world to me to be validated and to have, Listen, I'll tell you a huge surprise. Not once did it ever cross my mind that the largest percentage of my followers are therapists, trauma therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, and social workers. Mm -hmm. Wow. That never crossed my mind. And these are people who want to help people heal. You can imagine what my view is of the whole therapist industry as a whole. Um, That has been redeeming. And they reach out to me and I've had you know, many therapists reach out and say, can I consult with you on this or that? And it just, it means the world to me that they respect my voice and know that I have zero training as a therapist, zero certification, but they see someone who's worked so hard and wants to help other people and wants to educate and their validation has meant so much. But then that also makes me take it so serious where Every Mm -hmm. damn post I look at and I say to myself, is there something catty on here? Is there drama in here? Is there anything in here that's just to get a rise out of someone? Is this as authentic as it needs to be? And will it reach the people it needs to reach? And I think about that before every post. Um, And there's not a day that goes by that I don't hear from someone that says, you just described something that I've not been able to describe. And that's how this whole thing is built. It's, um, it's sacred, man. It, it really has been so beautiful. The stories that I hear from people are so heartbreaking and painful, but they're all trying and they're searching. Something else that I've learned is the unbelievable amount of privilege that I've had to get the help that I've had. I would say mm-hmm. something percent of my followers have no access to the kind of therapy yeah. that, either financially or geographically, like it's just not there. So my long-term goal is to continue to build my coaching practice where eventually my job is just coaching coaches and I build a nonprofit that gets mental trauma therapy, uh, mental health awareness and therapy for people who are in a position that they cannot get it on their own. 
So that's right. that's the long term goal to cover you know cover it all. Um, but that's been a huge eye opener for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Privilege and access is definitely something that two white men speaking, obviously, like oftentimes we're we're blind to the privilege that we have um, in lots of different ways. And privilege is a, is a broad word and, and speaks to lots of different things. But it is you're right. Like a lot of there there's more need than there is access to the care that people require. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to uh, loop back to the sort of spiritual side of things. Um, the, one of the things that I that I often ask um, near the end of an interview is just more a, a broad question of, of where are you now when it comes to elements of either spirituality or Christianity and given all of the experiences you've had personally – uh, with with healing and sort of having this understanding that a lot of evangelical Christianity stood in the way of your healing, yeah. um, how how do you relate to to that part of life now? And I'm not trying to lead you and uh, saying that I like to say is wholeness over holiness. I care more that people are whole, no matter where that leads them. I still think it's an interesting question, and it's a good one to ask and, and hear where you've landed just because again, speaking, as you said, to someone who's in the same position you were 10 or 11 years sure. ago. Um, so how do you approach that part of life or what is, um, what, have, what is your relationship to that, uh, where you are now? You might not like my answer. Um, uh, oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> my answer is I don't know and I don't care. That's, that's totally valid. That's absolutely. I valid. um. I had a conversation recently where I, I I get a lot of hate from evangelicals. They're just out of the blue, um, where they feel they they don't have the ability to look and say, "Holy shit! All of these people have been wounded by a religion that I participate in." That makes me curious. Instead, it's like, you guys are all worthless and you're disgusting and here's the Bible verses to prove it. And it's like, okay, well, that's that's really powerful. I want to be like you. You know, it's just, it, it is what it is. Um, people, people ask all the time, what do you believe now? And um, in, what I always say is that the reason I won't answer that question is because Christians especially need to know that there's still something in me that identifies with what they identify with or they cannot trust what I have right. to say. And I want yep. to go back to the days where politics and religion are kind of off the table and people have their own sense of privacy and awareness based on their life experience. Because the reality is like everybody believes what they believe based on what they've been exposed to. So all I can say is I've been exposed to a lot and I'm so, so grateful. And I believe that there is so much good in this world that we haven't tapped into. Um, beyond that, I just don't want to tell people what I believe. <laughs> like, listen, man, there are certain days where I'm not sure, but I, but what I am sure of is that I don't know and I don't care. Yeah, that is a totally valid answer, and I would absolutely affirm that. 
for me personally, I just had a similar thought recently that a statement of non-belief feels almost as binding as a statement of belief to me. Like at this point, yeah. <laughs> like how much time do you have? I'll, I'll tell you different what I think about different theologies, but not knowing and not caring is absolutely valid. And I think it's especially valid for people that come from this walk of life, this, this religious background, because you were forced to care. Like either you, you were highly motivated to care just innately, or you were forced to care externally. Uh, It's a shit show either way, but (laughs) But it's totally valid to to take a breather and not engage that part of life. And I think, too, like when I I I want to be super, super clear about this one piece. I believe evangelical Christianity is dangerous. I believe it's bullshit. I believe that it is the utter waste of time. You can blast that on like the highest volume. I want to be very, very (laughs) clear about that. And these are these are the points that I have with that. At six years old, I was taught. Because I had a high grade fever. We were not, we did not have insurance. So I was hallucinating and I was led to Christ because I was taught at that point there was a heaven or a hell because I was asking my mother, what happens if I die tonight? And that's when I learned about a heaven or a hell. No six year old, I don't care if we were on a playground and they were giving me cotton candy and thousands of dollars. No six year old, no 10 year old, no 20 year old should ever hear about a concept of hell. When our brains are not developed, we can't fully process what that means from a cognitive level, but then taught, make this decision or hear your consequences. That is disgusting. (laughs) That is just, that's appalling. And yet, yet I I believed it. I believed it for so long, but I look at that as one of the most abusive things. And I think, you know, this speaks volumes. There was a report that just came out in 2018 that they did a, um, I can't remember the name of the company. I posted it about it a couple of days ago. They did a uh, survey for the top 100 largest, most influential evangelical churches in the country to find out of those 100, how many are affirming. Number was zero. Right. Was it church clarity? Church clarity. Yeah. I'm just to the point now where it's just like, guys, the LGBTQ community and women who have had abortions have taken your wrath and been your scapegoats for so damn long while you sit back and you ignore all the bullshit right in front of your face that we're all addressing. And, and right. So I want to be super clear about how I feel about evangelical Christianity. No, no. I mean, this is, this is the show for people that have left evangelicalism. So you're totally good to go there. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to find an evangelical apologist. <laughs> no, no <laughs> confusion on my part there at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah. As, as far as the rest, it's uh, there's just so much beauty in life that I'm exploring and experiencing, and I love it. Right, and that's a great answer. That's a great answer. So, well, Nate, I thank you so much for for sharing all that you have this evening. Where can people find your work? Where where can they find you online or elsewhere? Okay, so everything is the other side of save. That's the blog podcast and. That's Instagram. And then my coaching practice is called Story Connect Coaching. And I have, um, I can do individual coaching. I've got a six month program on there and just introduce groups. They're private groups with um, up to 10 people each. Everything is done online and it's me facilitating healthy conversations. The three topics we're doing right now is um, religious trauma, 
LGBTQ support, meaning someone who is closeted just recently out or someone who's an ally. And then the uh, another piece, another group that I'm doing that I'm very excited about is um, survivors of male sexual abuse. So hmm. those are the three that that are operated right now. And it's just, it's powerful, man, to just have people come together and then everyone's connected and I just facilitate the conversations. Um, so yeah, any coaching that someone would be interested in, they can find me through storyconnectcoaching.com. Everything else is the other side of saved. Great. Great. Thank you so much, Nate, for, for joining me. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.